eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, this is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Hello, hello, and welcome in to the PBP. Yes, it's me, Matt Spiegel. I got to tell you, before we talk about today's show, next week's guest is my new baseball trivia texting buddy, Bob Costas. Yes, that is not a humble brag. That is just a straight-up massive brag that I own completely. After interviewing Bob Costas a couple weeks ago, having a thrilling time when he could not have been more gracious and generous, this past weekend I took the chance to throw him a great trivia question that had just come my way. He nailed two of the answers immediately, worked on the other one for a while before coming up with it. Oh, what was the question? Okay, well, here it is to you, the listener. Ronald Acuna and Matt Olson became the fourth set of teammates to have a 50 stolen base season and a 50 home run season in the same year on the same team. Can you name the other three? I'm looking for three sets of teammates who went 50 and 50 on the same team in the same year. Fun. Pause right here and think if you want. I'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. All right, now to this week's guest on the PBP. Will Fleming gets to work at Fenway Park doing Red Sox games, and you will enjoy him talking about the intricacies and unique factors of broadcasting in that cathedral. I sure did. The highlight of this one, though, may be when he talks about his big brother, Dave Fleming, who does radio for the San Francisco Giants. 
siblings pushing each other to excellence in baseball is nothing new on the field, right? Baseball brothers. Baseball Almanac says there have been 440 sets of brothers who made the big leagues. There's Joe Dom and Vince DiMaggio, the three Aloos who all played in the outfield together. The Delahontes were five brothers. And as you're thinking of whichever one resonated with you, uh, maybe it's Aaron and Brett Boone, George and Ken Brett, locally Wilson and William Contreras hugging each other with the lineup cards at the plate. On this episode, you will hear two brothers working together in a big league radio booth. It's pretty cool. Will and Dave Fleming broadcast together this year for the first time. You'll hear a great snippet of their time together. We started, though, Will Fleming and I, with the question that has become the central theme in the podcast all season long, in my opinion. You know, what's been interesting is like I've always been a broadcaster and an entertainer who has now had to learn the technique and the craft. And that's a different way than most people get into it. Most people get into it with totally. tech, with technique and craft and then try to find their voice as an entertainer, right? Totally, um, yeah. So, so that, that's been the backdrop. So let me start with that with you, uh, Will Fleming, uh, voice of the Boston Red Sox on WEEI. It, it, in terms of being a technician and an entertainer both, where would you say you are on that scale and how different is it from where you started? Man, isn't that the joy of this job? I, I would say that um, I, one of the joys for me right now is that I do feel like after five seasons in Boston, because I do think all of these jobs and all these markets and all these towns are different, that your fan base, your listeners night in and night out, ours in Boston are probably different in Chicago than those in New York or Philadelphia or Kansas City. And so you kind of have to find the combination, the balance of what you are and what you want to be on the air, which takes hours and hours and years and decades of, of honing with what you think your fans really like and the personality and DNA of, of your fan base. I think that is a driver. Uh, but I would say, I think probably like most who are just straight play-by-play -play people like myself, I started off on just the mechanics and the fundamentals. And in my early years in the minor leagues, that was almost my exclusive focus was just the technical aspect of being a good play-by-play -play broadcaster. Because I don't think, number one, that's the most important element of the job. I mean, that that is the essence of what we are. Obviously, you need to layer on personality and, and entertainment to make it truly great. Uh, but you, you have nothing if you can't do the balls and strikes and weave in the timing and the pace and let people know what's going on. Over the years, uh, in time, I think I have been able to introduce a lot more of myself and my personality. But I, I also think it takes time to learn what works in the context of a baseball broadcast that's much different than the talk shows that you do. Um, because, it, and by the way, that changes night to night based on what the game is telling you and what the game is giving you. Like, I think there are obviously slow nights where more of that is called for. And there are nights when it's super intense from the first pitch against a rival where I think there's less room for any of that. And it's less appropriate to go with that. So, um, mm. as you can tell, I think about all this stuff a lot. I love talking about it. I love exploring the ways that I can improve myself and the way that I can give more to our listeners night in and night out. But um, I, I do feel like, you know, the last couple of years here in Boston, I've been able to really give more of my personality to our fans. And it's been really nice for me 
to feel that embrace back and to, to, to hear from fans uh, more than ever that um, they enjoy when I do inject myself and my personality into the broadcasts. I don't think anyone has spoken to the nightly aspect of kind of adjusting to the game and the storylines in terms of in terms of what what parts of yourself uh, to, to bring to it. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, what what do you think are the unique factors for for Red Sox fans? And it, it is is part of it that you're sitting there next to an absolute legend in Joe Castiglione, who's got a idiosyncratic style that they've known for decades. Sure, that's part of it. Right. And I mean, first of all, Joe has been an absolute dream come true for me as my first full time major league partner. The guy is an absolute legend. He never once had any air of arrogance, ego, territorialism. There was none of that, which as you know, in this business, there can be plenty of because he's been there. When I showed up, he'd been there for 36 years. So he's pretty confident in his place in the Red Sox universe. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have every right to think about who's this young guy coming in here and and what's his angle? What's he trying to do? I mean, I was intentional about making it obvious that I was there to support him. And by the way, I try every single night to set him up to bring out his genius. And he is a baseball genius. I mean, night in and night out, he has memories and stories of Red Sox lore that you would not believe. Um, and he doesn't look anything up. He remembers everything from every season he's ever broadcast. And I, I think that's a huge part of my job when I am working with Joe to set that up and let our fans kind of drink that ambrosia because it is like walking down memory lane with them. And they all, whether they're on a patio uh, on a lake in New Hampshire or down the Cape on the beach, I think it transports our people back to those memories. And at, at the end of the day, isn't that what baseball on the radio is all about? Um, so, and, and, and having said that, I did want to defer to him for the first couple years because why wouldn't I? I mean, the guy has uh, a feel for what our fans are, what they need, what they want. And I just sat back and took his advice. Like in the COVID year, when we were absolutely awful, you know, a great piece of advice he gave me was we don't need to re-legislate this every night. Like there's just no point in beating it into the ground every night. Our fans know what's going on. So we hope for good games. We hope for good moments and good plays. Um, And that's sort of the approach we took in that year. On the flip side, when it's intense and when the team is good and they're in it, that is the focus uh, of that night's game. But um, I think to answer your original question, what makes Boston different? It's taken me a little while to wrap my head around this. Um, Our fans are so invested in our team And the stereotype is somewhat true that they get so angry if we are not meeting an expectation that has been set. And that doesn't mean you need to win every night, but they do appreciate a certain brand of baseball, a certain crispness and a a, a standard of excellence. And I think that I've learned that they want me to absolutely celebrate the highs and get so into big home runs and big wins and big games but they would not appreciate it if I did not echo their frustrations when things are not going well. And that does not mean you're critical of players themselves, but you do have to be critical and fair of bad plays. And I think that our fans not only expect that, they demand it. And I do not think that's the case. In fact, I know it's not the case everywhere else. It, it, it's, we are not in a market where if we make four errors in a game and we've lost seven of eight to fall out of a race, 
you can just ignore that and say, man, isn't it great that Jaron Duran is having a breakout year and <laughs> Tristan Casas, what a story he is. Our fans would hate me if I did that every night. I mean, you have to put that stuff in, but if the team is playing poorly and sloppy baseball, you have to say that in our market. And so I do think that's that's where it's a little bit different. And, and that also, like if everybody's in a sour mood, there are times to inject a little fun and levity and personality but you got to pick those spots too, because if the team is going off the rails, I, I, I don't think it's time for you know stand-up comedy hour with Will and Joe. So it, there is a balance there in our market that I think does not necessarily exist in other places. And on a human level, you need to feel supported by partners, producers, bosses, and team to actually be that way, don't you? In terms of the honesty, and that can be trick tricky to figure out where where you stand in those relationships. Sometimes. Sure it is. And I think we've seen a very prominent, obvious example this season of a team in our division uh, where that is obviously not the case, where you don't get that support. And I would say working for the Red Sox is a joy in that way. You can say whatever you want. You will not hear from anyone. I mean, with there are limits, obviously. But if you're not being offensive and you're not going outside the lines, if you want to be fair and true about a play or a player, yeah, you you have free reign to do that, and I, I think that's one of the really beautiful things uh, about our market. And again, they know that our fans would not tolerate uh, milk toast, you know, uh, glass half full all the time. The sun is shining. Broadcasting, they want us to celebrate the highs, but we have to be fair about the lows for sure. So, Will, when I was at Emerson and going to 30 games a year between 88 yeah. and 92, um, I got into the press box. I think once. And my God, that perch was unbelievable. It was below what was then, I think the 600 club is what they mm -hmm. called it, where there were 600 very special seats above. And then once they've rebuilt now, that's a very high spot at Fenway uh, behind the plate. But what what is it like there? What, what's something you see from that perch high above and obviously you get to do it all over the league but i'm thinking about that fenway perspective such a venerable you know legendary ballpark do you see certain nuances and nooks and crannies of that place from up there that you make sure to kind of um communicate to the fan base yeah it is certainly a distinct broadcast vantage point we are high but we're also close like we're very close to home plate which as a play-by-play -play broadcaster is essential you want to be able to i've always thought the number one job where's the pitch what happened when the pitcher delivered the ball where was it in relation to the plate and the strike zone and what did the hitter do and at our place we've got a great vantage point to do that um you know the 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 difference in being high at our place is that it takes a little bit of time joe always says that ken coleman his first year when Joe got here in 1983, Ken's first piece of advice to Joe, uh, which I've tried to take to heart, is when it goes toward the green monster, you have to wait. You just have to wait. Like, it's just the reality of our ballpark. Now, there are obviously times when there are no doubt home runs that you know are going to Lansdowne, and you can let it go there. But there are many times when you could, you could get caught out by a ball that's going to be high off the wall or just not uh, at a certain trajectory to get out. Um, we're a little bit blocked down the lines, the corners, like by the fist pole and by the pesky pole. And that's another one where you got to wait. Like the other night, we had the bases loaded in the ninth inning against Baltimore. And Trevor Story hit a ball right to the base of the pole. And you have to wait for the umpire to signal fair ball, which you do. And so then you see the ball carom into the corner and two runs score. 
it, it was not until I saw the replay that I, it, it was like two feet from being a game tying grand slam behind that that little cutout wall and underneath and off the base of the pesky pole. Um, I, I just think, you know, one of the things about this job that's marvelous is Fenway Park. And I try once a homestand to just walk the ballpark because I think we can all get in routines where you just park your car, you walk in the gate, you say hello to the security guy, you get in the elevator, you go to your booth, you go to the field for batting practice, you talk to the manager in his office, and you just, you very much wrote in your routine. I try to break myself of that. And without fail, every time I do that, I'm glad that I did. Like, I'll sit by the Ted Williams seat in right field and watch our guys shag fly balls in the outfield. And it lets me see our new guy, Sedan Rafaela, take angles that I haven't seen a center fielder take since Jackie Bradley. Or the other day, I just walked all the way around to the, to the right field corner by the pesky pole. And then as I walked down behind home plate, the gates had opened. And one thing it's easy for us to forget, those of us who have the joy of working in this job every day, is the sense of wonder that people feel coming into a ballpark. And I do think that's ratcheted up at Fenway Park. Like I walk behind home plate as someone who appeared to be in their 60s. And you could tell they were a visiting fan. It was their first time at Fenway Park. They walked up the ramp behind home plate and looked at this expanse of green and the wall and left. And there was a childlike audible gasp like oh my god this is the most beautiful thing that i've ever seen and i think it's important to not be jaded by the fact that you're working in one of the great living breathing cathedrals in all of pro sports in the world and um so yes when i'm sitting at that vantage point looking out at the sitco sign and the monster and the downtown skyline and this it, it just amazing expanse of verdant green you do think about Ted Williams and Yastrzemski and Manny and Ortiz and Pedroia on the dirt at second base. And I, that ballpark, I do think, evokes sense of memory and history uh, in a way that very few do. And, and we're, we're blessed to call it our office every night. Oh, man, I, I couldn't agree more, um, whether it's my, you know, childhood um, Red Sox fandom and Fenway love or now what I've had with 25 or 30 years being around Wrigley pre and post renovations and the desire to try and keep that aura, keep that yes. sense of, of history. Um, and and as, as you walk around in that empty ballpark, let, let, let's be honest. As a play-by-play guy, you have the freedom to go in as early as you want and go anywhere you want in the ballpark. There's, and that sense of kind of ownership of the entire place, um, as long as it goes along with the reverence, it's sort of essential to do the job, isn't it? Because you're the conduit to not just the ballpark, but the entire building, the entire experience. you got to be able to speak to it from a comfortable place of confidence. I think. Sure you do. And I, I think that our place is a living museum and there are nooks and crannies inside the ballpark that, by the way, come into play yeah. in the course of a game. Like we have a, a tunnel just past third base called Canvas Alley. And now it's one of the areas where the grounds crew comes out and media wait to come out onto the field in postseason games. And it's taken on new meaning in modern times. It was originally 
built so that elephants with the circus could come onto the field at Fenway Park, right? So, and you you wouldn't necessarily know that if you don't read the history of the ballpark or go down and see the plaque that's right there on the wall in Canvas Alley. And there are things like that all throughout the entire yard. You know, this is the spot where the first door to the Red Sox offices when they moved to Fenway Park uh, in 1912, and that that too was down the first baseline. You know, it's like these little things that that will come up. You have to be not just conversant in the history of the ballpark. I mean, for goodness sake, it, it, it's my, it's like if you're the CEO of a company, you need to know all the little arms of the business. Um, and you have to know from the, the lowest marketing manager to your CFO, to your chief technology people, you got to know all the angles of it. And so I've always felt like, you know, the, the ballpark, especially Fenway, uh, is such a, an important element of Red Sox fandom and history. Uh, so yeah, and, and, and I, again, I just think it's really, important. And the first time I did this, ironically enough, was in COVID when no one was in the ballpark and we would be, the team would be out on the road and we'd be doing games from our broadcast booth alone uh, off of TV monitors. It would be Joe and me and our producer and maybe like two security people, literally like the, the front office would not be there. There was no one in the ballpark. And it occurred to me in those moments, like seriously, in the history of that place, 112 years, how many people ever, ever, other than the owner and maybe the team president and probably the head groundskeeper a couple of times are sitting in there with themselves, like legitimately. And a couple of times I would wait until like 30 minutes after when I knew the security people were gone and I knew Joe and Doug, our engineer, were gone. And I would just sit in the front row behind our dugout and look out at Fenway Park and, and, and just kind of soak it in and, 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 and the quiet of it. You know, the, the, these ballparks are these living things and they are brought to life by the fans and the sounds and the hawkers and the peanuts and the smell of hot dogs and, and mustard and all that stuff. But there's something really almost religious about being in it alone when it's quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think that allows you to appreciate it, in a way it sounds so cheesy, but like the living historic soul of Fenway Park. And, and I, I, I almost view it like, you know, it, it's 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 your grandpa and it, he is. Most of the time, just kind of sitting on the back patio, you know, drinking a glass of lemonade and, and rocking in his chair, reading the newspaper. And then here comes the family reunion and everybody's around from the grandkids, the great grandkids. And that's when he comes to life and can can be his fullest self. Well, that's the way I kind of view Fenway Park when when the gates open and fans come in, especially when the ball club is playing great. Uh, and it's those special, magical moments where the place is rocking. Um, I, I just it is really is a treat to call that place home. It's great stuff. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, Will Fleming, is there a childhood origin story? Um, It's funny. I just talked with John Miller a couple weeks ago, and John Miller has a legendary one where he's playing Stratomatic with his friends yes. and they go over to each other's houses and like one, one kid's mom really put out the charcuterie tray. So that was the road game that you really wanted to do. <laughs> great and, spread. Oh yeah. The great spread. And, and Miller apparently used to sing the anthem before. I mean, so like, I don't know that we're not going to get better than that, uh, obviously, but like, is there a moment for you as, as a kid or was it older? Because I know you didn't, I think you went to college at Stanford for Spanish literature. Is Indeed. that correct? That yeah. is correct. So, so when when does the spark hit you? When does the moment hit you where you're like, you know what, this is what I'm chasing? You know, I, it's funny you say John Miller because these your listeners uh, probably know that my brother works with John yeah. and has for 20 years in San Francisco. Uh, but going back further than that, uh, you know, my brother and I sort of crazy. Two brothers are both major league baseball broadcasters, but it, we were not the kids who like so many who do this job, turned down the TV and did pretend play-by-play. That just, we never did that. We were sports fans and it was a huge topic of discussion around the dinner table, in the car, to our own sports practices before and after school. Uh, our mom is a huge sports fan. It was just always the language that we, we spoke together. But, you know, we grew up in Northern Virginia um, I was born in 1979, my brother three years before that. And so the, the Washington Nationals were not in existence. Um, and, and so we were Baltimore Oriole fans and our father's family came from Missouri. So they were big time St. Louis Cardinal fans. So we certainly listened to and watched a lot of Jack Buck. But it was John Miller in our consciousness, I think, for the first time, you know, in your early teens, when you're really aware of what's going on. John was the voice of the Baltimore Orioles. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's such a trip to have fallen in love with baseball on the radio, listening to him do it. Um, and I think most people who have appeared on this show would say that he is about as talented and freakishly great at the art of it as anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth. Um, and so to have absorbed it so much through him, uh, and then, by the way, to have all these conversations with him about the art of it, the mechanics of it, the technique of it, and then to, to walk into a booth with my brother uh, sitting next to him doing it for 20 years has just been mind-blowing. Um, but you're right, I didn't, I, I didn't go to college for it. We both you know, worked for the the Stanford student radio station, KZSU. Um, But it was easier to do it there because nobody went to Stanford just to do sports broadcasting, unlike, you know, Syracuse and Ball State and Fordham and so many other places where you go to do that as your vocation. Um, And obviously, I'm biased about this, but I'm glad that I didn't just go to school to broadcast sports on radio and television. I, I think it it gave me uh, a different view of the world um, that it, that I hope and think and believe it does inform our broadcast and allows me to go different places and directions each night that are that are broader mm-hmm. uh, than just sports and baseball, whether it's something I read or, or learned or whatever the case might be. Pop culture often comes into any good uh, broadcast. But uh, yeah, I, I was not one of these people who grew up thinking this is what I have to do and have to be. 
Um, but, but after a while working in Silicon Valley and doing other things, um, my heart was in it. And I, I just said to myself, you're going to kick yourself. You're, you're going to be sitting in a hospital bed and 60 years saying how you're such a coward for not trying to do this. And, ah. and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, an incredibly hard road. Uh, I'd be lying if, if I said that having someone in my family who has done it and who's made connections and who probably cracked open some doors for me didn't ease the path a little bit. But that doesn't mean, and I spent nine years in the minor leagues riding buses and making no money and uh, you know traveling all over the place. Yeah, so, let, let's talk about that for a second because I didn't realize you had started in Silicon Valley with your Stanford brethren probably. So like, yeah. I'm sure a lot of them as they were joining the corporate world, were beginning to make ridiculous dollars as you had chosen to spend those years, what, um, Potomac Nationals, Lancaster Jethawks, and eventually the Indianapolis Indians all before Pawtucket, right? So, I mean, that you chose the minor league grind. Well, I did. And so my first job is 2009 in Lancaster, 500 bucks a month to do just the home games on radio. And, and by the way, to do three innings of the home games because they had a primary play-by-play guy uh, who, you know, ran the show there. And and it was like getting crumbs off the, the dinner table to get any innings of play-by-play. And you're doing all the stat packs. You're getting there at 5 a.m. to pull the tarp. You're you're just on call to do whatever it is that the organization <laughs> you wants you to do. Did you pull the tarp? Did you really many, pull the tarp? Many, many times. I can't tell you that. And especially in Potomac, A-ball, when it rained all the time in the summer there, I mean, legitimately, my phone would ring at 530 and I'd make the 30 minute drive down to the ballpark to put the tarp on the field because an unexpected thunderstorm had rolled through town. So, you know, between that and all the bus rides and the long the long evenings in front of 20 fans, I'll never really uh, feel bad about, you know, the chartered planes and the great hotels and the big league ballparks. But yes, in 2009, when I'm making five hundred dollars a month to do minor league baseball, I mean, that's. That's eight years after my graduating year at Stanford. And so, yes, all my friends are buying homes and getting married and driving nice cars and uh, moving up executive boards and all this stuff. So you had to kind of put blinders on and block that out uh, and stay true to, you know, the aspiration and the dream. And, And for what it's worth, Matt, I think, again, by that time, my brother's in the big leagues with the San Francisco Giants. And yeah. so I was really intentional every single year, multiple times to go see him and to go into their broadcast booth and to see David and John do it so that not only could I absorb what it felt like at the big league level and take from that what I could, but also a, a, a like a tangible carrot light at the end of the tunnel this is why you are doing this and though it might be hard on a seven hour bus ride from myrtle beach to lynchburg that gets you into a hampton inn the room's not ready you get there at 5 30 a.m those moments it's hard to remember that goal i always thought it was important to to touch and feel and see that as often as possible to kind of keep yourself pushing yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. And um, I'll, I'll do respect to our sponsor, the Hampton Inn. Just kidding. They're not our sponsor. Um, <laughs> Wonderful uh, place. That, those are the days, like literally, when you, like, you'd get a free breakfast and they had a coffee machine in the oh, lobby. Oh, You're like yeah. so thrilled. It's like, we're, we've made it now. 
I, I, there's a lot of minor league broadcasters who listen to this. So it's, it, it's, it's great to hear the, the idea of having the aspiration and being able to go there and actually touch the aspiration. And to those minor league broadcasters, go and apply for a press pass in, in a big league city and go ahead and do that and, yes. and, and, and get yourself in there and feeling it. Um, so I, I was trying to think before I was going to talk to you, Will, there's the Kuiper brothers um, with the Giants and, and the A's up until this year. There's you and your brother, Dave. Mm-hmm. I know so many father sons, um, obviously. I mean, Joe Buck was the first episode of this um, of this podcast and his book, Lucky Bastard, is a great self-aware uh, tome. <laughs> um, I, I know that that Harry Carey's great grandkid twins are still doing it somewhere. Hell, hell, my nephew is the voice of the Indianapolis Indians where you used to work. Yeah. Uh, the great Jack McBall. And there's a lot of nephews and kids and whatever. How many bro- brothers are there other brothers that I don't know about other than the Kuipers and the Flemings? Not that I've found, you know, it's not something I take a lot of time to look into, but people started asking me earlier this summer because the Red Sox played the Giants at Oracle Park in San Francisco. And that was the second time we had been together. Uh, In 19, they came to Fenway Park and we kind of walked into each other's booths a couple times on air and shared a little bit of time on the radio. But this year um, at at the Giants ballpark, we, you guys we each did, a, did an inning. You guys, you guys each did an inning with each other. We don't do things halfway, <laughs> so we we have an idea. We're, we're, the cameras are rolling yep. in. Here's the one zero swing and a miss. Devers tied up there, and it's one and one. It's been great for me to be back in this ballpark, and I can't tell you how many times ushers and security guards and all the people around here say hi, Dave's brother. The one one <laughs> is fouled off on the third base side, and it's one and two. And I've been called a lot worse. Well, two years from now, when you come back, because now the Giants and the Red Sox are going to play each other every year with the new schedule, everybody will say, hi, Will. (laughs) By then, everybody will practice your name. I would like to make this a habit. Fun time. One and two to Devers. I mean, we may never do this again. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. What was that like, Will? That was about the coolest thing you could ever. I wish the innings were longer. Like, they, of course, you know, you, you script this whole thing and it's a one, two, three inning and it's over in four minutes, right? Like, where's the, you know, six walk, uh, 10 run inning when you really need it? Um, you know, it, it was emotional for me on a lot of levels. And and I, I had tried to kind of block it out um, going into that series. I, I, obviously, the calendar comes out, the schedule, and I'm, I circle it and I know that it's going to be a special time for me. Um, one of our writers asked me about it in the dugout before the first game. Like, okay, now we're here. What are you thinking about? And I really, Matt, I swear to God, it it totally overtook me with emotion. Because I just, I put it to the side. Um, but being in that ballpark where I'd watch my brother do it, but just as importantly, I'd aspired to be there doing it myself and take it to another level. His his daughters, my twin nieces, speaking of twins, they're 17 years old and they're going into their senior year of high school and they're there that night. I walked into that broadcast booth with them for their first time when they're five months old. Right. And so it's not only like this professional uh, moment for me, and, and a, but it's a full circle life moment. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about them, the family side of it, the fact that I did 
make it to that ballpark as a visiting broadcaster. And it didn't hurt, but it happened to be with the Boston Red Sox, you know. Um, and, you know, I think about all the, the conversations that I've had with my parents um, about the, the, the joy that they experience, you know, listening to both my brother and to me, you know, like they both put the, the Red Sox on and then at about 10 o'clock flip, flip over to the West Coast and listen to Giants on the radio. So um, I, it was it was the coolest three days uh, of my professional career. And it'll be hard to to ever match it. You know, the fun thing about the, the balanced schedules, we're going to get it every year now. Yeah. Um, but to do it for the first time and we got, you know, it was like one of these spectacular San Francisco days where it's sun sunny the whole day. And the, you know, the sun is setting in the Berkeley Hills and I'm looking over there, my nieces and my brother, and I'm getting texts from mom and dad. And yeah, it was just, it was one of those magical moments that, uh, that I'll I'll take with me forever. That's, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, do you end some of your nights listening to big bro do his games on the app while you're lying in bed or sitting on the balcony? I do, by the way, I, I was with him and John Miller for the Alex Cobb near no hitter a few weeks ago. Oh man, I thought he, I thought, I thought Matos had a chance to get that ball in right field. Uh, <laughs> I probably not in bed. My wife would murder me. Uh, we have, uh, we have enough time committed to baseball, uh, and away from the house and in ballpark. But I mean, one of the things is I live about 45 minutes from the ballpark. So not some nights, every night, you know, when we're done with a game, uh, I'm putting the Giants on um, because I'm invested in them, too. And it's such a cool thing to hear my brother in that way. And, you know, as great as John is and he is, I mean, there's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame. There's a reason almost all of us revere him uh, in the way that we do. You know, I, I. I I say this with the acknowledgement that I am as biased as anybody can possibly be. But as a practitioner in this thing, it is wild to me to listen to my brother, someone with whom I share a great deal of DNA, and think about and listen to the things that he does night in and night out. Because uh, I don't think you can really appreciate, like, look, he, somebody who doesn't do play-by-play turns it on and says, man, this is really great. Like this, I'm enjoying this. So what does he do? What, what, what does he do that you hear specifically? You can get nuts and boltsy with me. Well, I think what he does is um, we're all trying to find the balance between um, mechanics, nuts and bolts, play-by-play, timing the mechanisms of getting everybody ready for the pitch and where is it, what's happening. I mean, in terms of just pure technical play-by-play. Yep. Um, in the, like, I've always thought that both he and John, but, you know, I'm, I'm talking about David here. The crazier the play, like, the, the harder it is, the more things that go on, I think he's able to elevate in a way that is really remarkable. Um, and I, I feel that way, too, in the bigger spots, too. You know, the Giants' playoff runs, their World Series, I thought – he was able to elevate in a way that that is really uh, just overwhelmingly impressive. Uh, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you talked to Boog about this, and I'm, God knows you talked to Benetti about it. Um, we're all trying to find the way to be conversant in the things that uh, build teams these days through front offices, the analytics, the stats, the, the underlying numbers. Um, and you have to, to sprinkle a lot of that in. Some of us do that more than others. I think David does a great, great job of that in, you know, uh, lightly touching it, uh, explaining what it is, why teams think about these things, what is important about them. And then I think he moves on and gets back into the more, you know, traditional storytelling elements of it. 
Um, I think he does that as seamlessly and, and masterfully as most. Um, and then the other thing is he just has fun with John, which I, at the end of the day, you know, this is entertainment for God's sake. Like, you know, we all live and die by it. You want the team to win. You want playoff pushes and you want to be in a duck boat parade at the end of the year. But like it's 162 days a year for yeah. three or more hours. Like you are going to be in people's lives for hours and weeks and almost months in a year. So you better kind of fall easy on the ears, be entertaining, not take yourself too seriously. And for all of his successes, he doesn't, right? Like so many broadcasters, when they reach a certain level of acclaim, I think they change a little bit and he never has. Like he's just the same guy that I've been listening to for 20, 25 years. And I, I, I just think that's so amazing. And his, his range, his breadth in all these different sports, he does all of them well. So, you know, mm. I, again, I'm biased, but I, I think that he is really one of the best to do it. All right, pretty cool. Two things there. One is that um, when you describe your brother rising to the moments, um, this is why, in, in speaking of Boog and the numbers and conversations I've had for decades now, clutch exists, people. It exists, yeah. or at least it's the absence of choke, if that's what we want to deal with. I mean, we see humans rise or not to those moments. Um, so there's no difference with that in the ball players. It's just a personal cross that I that I bear every chance I get. And the other yeah. thing is that I, I'm going to have to now call your brother and ask him what you do well, because this is a unique place <laughs> where we could do both of those things. Um, a few more minutes here with Will Fleming. This is this is wonderful. I'm enjoying it a lot. What What is something that you have to do as part of your game prep that you cannot ignore. Like if I don't do this before tonight's game, I will feel naked when it starts. Talk to people. I mean, I, and I, I, I just, that's always been my governing principle is I think my, our, my job, in addition to all the stuff we've talked about, Matt, the mechanics, the timing, the set people up for the pitch, build the suspense, let the ballpark, the sounds of the bat, the glove, the fans, let that be the soundtrack. You have to let that in. Uh, especially on radio. But beyond that, I've always thought, you know, the fundamental job is to tell people things they could not read on the internet or in a newspaper. Because now there's so much information and so many numbers and so much is written and said, especially in a market like Boston, where we got 15 writers and they're all looking for their own angle and they're talking to different players every day. And I glean a lot from the stories that I read from them but it's my job, I've always thought, to tell our fans and our listeners things that they didn't read in mm -hmm. the paper or online. And so that involves talking to our guys every single day. And I mean, that starts with the manager. What did you see here? What were you thinking strategically? Because Alex Cora is this baseball genius who sees like seven plays ahead. And I've always thought it's important to try to get in, into his head as much as possible to share that with our fans. But I want to, you know, I've always thought that if you're going to sit up high, and talk about a physical endeavor by other people. Yeah. Like it's ludicrous to not talk to them about it. I, who, who the hell am I to say that like Justin Turner should have done this in an at bat where the guys had thousands of key at bats in postseason runs. I need to ask him what happened in this situation. What were you thinking about with this pitcher? And by the way, it's almost always paid off with an amazing recollection of pitch sequences, what they were discussing before the game. Like, I think in that moment, 
if you can take a, a listener into the head of a hitter and a pitcher based on your previous discussions with them and mm-hmm. pay it off with something that happens, like that is the true gold uh, that, that you can sort of elevate them and their experience to another level. So if I don't talk to our players and our manager and a lot of our coaches on a given day, like to me, then, then you know, obviously not everybody could do the job, but then there's a sameness to it, right? Like if we're all reading the same game notes and clips and stories and we all watched the game the night before and we're all watching what's unfolding before us that night, uh, to me, I just think it's it's essential to get the story of that day and what's happening around the ballpark, the feel of it, what guys are going through uh, personally on the field and off. And I think that that can really inform what you're talking about that night. In terms of scoring, um, hell, we did a whole episode with Bob Carpenter on this <laughs> show. Um, and, and and I know a lot of people have the book. Joe Davis these days just uses the one-sheeter that yep. the PR staff brings around because he has everything else uh, at his disposal. Um, Marty Brenneman had to start buying number one pencils in bulk because stationary stores stopped selling them. I, I, I didn't even know the number one pencil existed. I'm waiting for the number three. I know it's going to blow my mind. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you use? What are the pencils or the pens? And has that evolved for you? You know, um, I, I've changed a couple of times. Um, I would just say as a, as a overall philosophy, I write almost nothing down. I really do. I, I, I think that most people, when they have written something down before the game, uh, they feel almost compelled to use it. And I look, there are things that need to be said. And so I'll write one or two things down for a, a certain guy if he's on a streak or something important could happen. Um, you don't think the uh, act of, does the act of writing it down lock it into your head for you? I, I, I think find- that's yeah, it does. But I mean, I'm different. We're all different, right? Our brains all work in different ways. Yeah. Um, I'm, my philosophy on it mostly is just like I think the game should dictate what you're going to talk about, not what you've prepared. I, I just I'm you look. I mean, there are some certain essential things. What the pitcher's done lately, a little bit of bio maybe, but like I'm in media guides so little. I got. I, you know, if there's an interesting story about somebody, I'm, I would love to tell that. I, I don't know. I, I really don't think people care where uh, the, the, the left-handed reliever went to college or, or like where he was three years ago in the big leagues. I, I really, unless it's something anecdotal that, that is interesting about what he's doing now in sure. this moment on this day. Um, and, and I just, you know, if there's something that I want to find, I can always find it. But I just, I, I've always thought, you know, don't write too much down because then you're going to feel forced to jam it into the broadcast rather than just kind of letting it happen organically. Yep. Um, we're all weird about the, the the things we use to score. Like my brother, and I know Boog now, like they do it on the iPad. Um, number one, my Boog has like this calligraphy handwriting that's just out of control. Uh, his penmanship is is just outrageous. Uh, I, I, I'm a horrible... Penman, and so it gets even worse on the iPad. So it just looks uh, aesthetically. I can't do it, but I also just there's something about the digital element of scoring. I can't, I like the touch and feel of yes. an abs- actual piece of paper. Um, so I actually do like a basic, like the Baseball Writers of America thing, um, but I do it on cardstock so that I can kind of flip it over. Um, and I have found that I just like to have one piece of paper. 
for some reason. Like I don't, I don't like the raised big book and, and I don't, if I need to find something that happened in previous games, I can always do that without flipping back to, you know, 75 games ago in the middle of April in my book. So Mm -hmm. I'm weird. I like these blue specific blue felt tip pens that, that write a certain way. I mean, we're all such weirdos, aren't we? Uh, But there's something about cardstock and blue felt tip pens that does it for me. (laughs) There's no kink shaming on this show. We're just all aliens. Aren't we? Goodness me. Why do we care about these things? Because, because you got to do it every day and it's got to be comfortable. And there's so many things, there's so many plates spinning mentally and emotionally and all of that, that, that you got to have the logistics dialed in. Right. It just, yeah. One last thing, right? Like I I remember hearing that Obama just had blue and black suits and white shirts and blue shirts. Right. Yes. And that was it. Like I've got enough going on as the president of the United States to not think about what I'm going to wear every day. And it's sort of a similar philosophy. Like, let's just eliminate these these points of friction so that my brain can totally focus on it. It makes all the sense in the world. And and look at the ball players. I mean, I mean, you know, they 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 have that that same kind of uh that 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 slavish uh, approach to detail and and all those little things, so they don't have to worry about um, anything but the task at hand. Um, tell me something from the past few Red Sox years um, that you love just a moment that comes to your mind. I know that's broad, but, but something that you loved where you felt like either a, you nailed the call or, or the moment um, lingered and and you're proud of it. Curious what Hmm. comes to mind, man. Um, there've been some big moments, big home runs from like Tristan Casas this year uh, that have put us ahead in big games. We've not had a lot this year, Matt, unfortunately that really stands out because we, we have had such a maddening up-and-down season. Um, but, yeah, he hit a big home run, um, a three-run bomb into left center field over the monster at Fenway Park that I, that I feel like was one of those moments that um, I, I, I met and, and the timber of my voice met the moment. Pitch is driven high and deep in the left center field, back toward the monster. It is back. It is gone. A three-run homer for Casas the opposite way. Into the monster seats, his 24th, and it is 7-3 Red Sox. There was a moment in the playoffs two years ago uh, when Rafi Devers hit a home run off Shane McClanahan to essentially clinch that series. Um, and it was an absolute missile. Uh, and I let the fans be a part of that, too. Scoreless game, the pitch. Swing and a high fly ball into center field. Kiermeyer back at the wall. Kiermeyer will watch it. Gone! Rafi Devers, three-run homer to straightaway center. And the Red Sox lead it three to nothing. Isn't that ironic, right? Like, most of the times... Um, the calls I like the most are, are kind of the most simple ones. Like this ball is crushed, it's back. And then with your voice, you kind of just m- meet the moment and let the fans be the rest of it. You mentioned Benetti, just to, to, to piggyback on what you're talking about. Yeah. He and I talked about how what you guys do, what broadcasters do is art, but it's as close to mindfulness as possible in terms mm. of in terms of art because you're piggybacking the moment you're part of the moment so as you describe letting the crowd do its thing that's beautiful and then Benetti likened it to what a friend of his who'd just written a book had talked about which was the placard at the museum of metropolitan art that 
the placard is art. Somebody wrote that to accompany the piece, but the star is the piece, you know? So that's, it, it's beautiful to feel that kinship with the moment. Not, it's not just about you, obviously. I'm stunned that Benetti is smarter than I about these things and able to put it in, in words in a better way than I. I mean, he, he's so annoying in that way, isn't he? I know. I mean, God, oh, I know. The worst. The worst. Uh, um, <laughs> I remember, Matt, going back 20 years almost, um, being in the International League with Benetti, talking about what you and I are discussing today, the, the essence of and the personal nature of a broadcast and what makes each of us great. And I, like Jason would take improv classes to get his brain into a space where he could react to the organic, spontaneous moments in a broadcast. And while I would never do that, and while I would sound like an idiot, if I tried to make the connections and go down the wormholes that Jason does, there are probably things that I do on a broadcast that he wouldn't try to do in just the same way. So I, I just think uh, for any young up and coming broadcasters listening to this, that would be the, the main thing I would say is, I, I think it's essential to listen to other people, pick the people you love who do it. Like for me, that was John, that, that was Dan Shulman uh, and many, many others. You gotta listen and absorb their technique because I do think you can benefit from that just like, it, burning it on your neurons in your brain, that sense of timing and rhythm, I like to me, that is essential. But don't try to be anyone else because you won't be as good as they are. No one is going to be Jason or John or Dan or my brother. You're just not. Um, be yourself. And, and that will be a more authentic, original, enjoyable version of a broadcast than any impersonation, whether forced, intentional or otherwise, just it, it will ever be. So, um, I, you know, I, and that's, that's, by the way, one of the great joys of this is none of us are a completely finished product. You know, you asked me at the beginning to, to sort of talk about where I am. I'm happy with it. You know, like uh, it, it, Will Urabreu hit his first big league home run a couple weeks ago in Houston. And I thought, you know, for the first time, I, I mixed in a Spanish call because I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish. Uh, and I hadn't thought about doing that until that exact moment when this kid comes up and hits his first major league home run. One, one. He drives one high and deep in the right field. Adios. William Abreu launches his first major league home run, and it is three nothing Red Sox. The willingness, the the comfort to be able to go there for the first time, rather than scripting something and 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 planning it out. Um, none of us are done in this thing, and and that's what's so fun about it is that every single night you can get better and you should try to get better. And while you're, you know, you're, you're working on the layers that you've built over all these years and the mechanics and the tempo and the rhythm and the very comfortable things that we can all kind of go on autopilot and do, um, every night is this blank canvas to do something different and to add another weapon to your own arsenal. Um, and I, that's, that's really the joy of this thing. It's like every night you get to just sit there be in this mindset, focus on the thing right in front of you and try to be the best version of yourself. That's beautiful stuff. We'll end it right there. Thank you so much, Will Fleming. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. Yes, Will. Yes, that dovetails with advice that I have given aspiring talk show hosts for decades. 
and it stands for play-by-play voices as well. Learn all the technical stuff you need to. Follow the broadcast rules, but then whatever makes you unique, whatever makes you you, go ahead and accentuate it when possible. Let it breathe. Let it live. More fans than you could imagine will probably relate to you. All right, next week, it's the legend. Tell a friend. Bob Costas talks big league play-by-play with us on our little podcast. I'm going to call 1994 Matt Spiegel and tell him that I got to talk baseball with Bob. That young man will not believe it. And the trivia question I mentioned at the top that I texted with Bob about over the weekend, Ronald Acuna and Matt Olson became the fourth set of teammates to have a 50 stolen base season and a 50 home run season in the same year on the same team. Can you name the other three? They are all post-1995, interestingly enough. So no George Foster, Joe Morgan, no Willie Mays or Lou Brock with a teammate. It's Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell for Cleveland in 1995. Giancarlo Stanton of the Marlins in 2017, along with D. Gordon. And the one that I didn't get, the one that Costas took hours to come up with, Sammy Sosa and Eric Young of the Cubs in the year 2000. So, Bob Costas next week, then a special-themed playoff episode the first week of October with a repeat guest that we're extremely excited about. My producer on the PBP is Ryan Porth. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find the PBP, Voices of Baseball, on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, the PBP, Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game. 